Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of uh, SFP Now here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. Um, we've got a great guest uh, coming up in a few moments in the form of David Avignoni, um, comics writer, actor and um, documentary filmmaker. Um, he'll be talking with us about his work at Dynamite Comics, specifically his run on Doc Savage and... Um, and pretty much how he got into uh, in, into comics. Uh, he's a really great guy. It's a really cool conversation. I think uh, people will enjoy it. So, without further ado, here's David Abingoli. Comics writer, actor, director, and activist David Avaloni. How are you doing, David? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Ian? I, I'm doing really well, and I'm really, really excited to uh, to be talking to you because um, I've been reading your 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 uh, your recent comics, and I've, I've really been enjoying them. So you know, thank, thank you. Thank you. I, Guess the first question I have got to ask you is: um, you you've come into the world of comics via the route of acting and directing. Um, how how did it all come about for you? It was uh, it was completely out of left field. I was working with a woman named Allison Baker, um, and she read actually an old script of mine uh, that never got produced anywhere called "The End of the Day," and she really liked it, and she thought that I would be a natural for writing comic books. And she and her husband, who's a comic book writer named Chris Roberson, um, I went to San Diego Comic Con and hung out with them and they introduced me to a bunch of comic book editors and one of the editors they introduced me to was a guy named Joseph Rybant who's the senior editor at Dynamite and we hit it off very well and uh, Dynamite as I'm sure you know holds a lot of these 1930s licenses uh-huh. um, for the classic pulp characters and my father was a 1950s, 60s, 70s uh, pulp fiction detective novel writer and <laughs> sort of raised me reading these 1930s pulps that he grew up on. So I'm not that young. I'm 51. But unlike a lot of 51-year-olds, I sort of grew up in the 1930s without growing up in the 1930s. I was surrounded by the literature uh, and the pop culture of the 1930s. And my dad was a guy who talked like it was still the 1930s and 1940s. So I think Joe felt it was natural to put me on that kind of material, even though the first thing I ended up doing for them was a Vampirella steampunk thing. 
Mm-hmm. But in its own way, that you know that sounds like it took place at the turn of the century. So even that had a you know had a, a period feel to it, even though it was technically another planet, another time, another place. But yeah, that's how I got into it. Was uh, drinking at the Hilton Bayfront Hotel in San Diego and uh, mostly talking about old movies with people. Cool. Um, you know, I, I was going to ask you about Vampirena. Um, actually, cause, um, was you actually a fan of 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 Vampirena before before you got to write her? Yes, at the back in the seventies, I would see the Vampirella magazines and was a reader of that stuff. And uh, my favorite thing about her, and I feel like a lot of the writers in between the seventies and the present day kind of threw out what was the most interesting thing about her. Um, I love. I'm not a fan of vampire things, and I particularly don't like that whole just you know gothic middle European uh, Sturm and Drang, and, uh, it cracked me up that she's a princess from a planet of vampires and not even a little bit related to all of that stuff. You don't have to go back and talk about Vlad Dracul and, you know, the, the, uh, invasion of Europe and all that kind of thing. It's just, nope, completely crazy 1970s origin story involving a planet of vampires. Um, so I actually used that origin in my stamp, steampunk Vampirella because I thought it was hilarious. Cool. Um, but yeah, I had sort of lost track with her over the of her over the years, and some of the reboots. And you know, no insult to the writers. Some very good writers worked on her, uh, but I think even some very good writers gave her a very boring new origin story. They made her the. I think she's like the daughter of Satan. Like they, they just went back oh, to right. yeah. some fairly boring biblical. They changed her origin to something that was just, uh, to me, a very sort of trite biblical nonsense that's very, 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 very popular in the horror field. Yeah, so, I think they, uh, I think they did that for the Vampirella movie, didn't they? When 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 they changed the origin. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. But I remember I I did some research when I got the job. I'm a big believer in research, and I went back and read and looked at, you know, how the character had evolved since she'd been introduced, and I kept going, yeah, I, the girl I love is the outer space vampire chick from the late 60s, early 70s, uh-huh. so I'm just going to stick with her. Yeah. And there was even, I didn't talk about the origin, if you read that Vampirella series, I don't think anyone ever comes out and says it, but I had my artist recreate, it was a panel from one of the old Warren comics showing her planet, which had twin suns, and I had that panel as a painting on the wall in her office. Wow. <laughs> and she keeps a she keeps a painting of uh, planet Draculon in her office. I'm like, yeah, if nobody picks up on that, that's fine, but... Mm-hmm. That's my girl. <laughs> so basically Star Wars nicked their origin story for Luke Skywalker from Vampirella. Yeah, yeah. they have a lot in common. <laughs> they're, they're both very petulant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's actually very obvious from, you know, what little I've read of, of, of your work. So I've only, you know, my introduction to you has really been uh, Doc Savage and Ring Fire. Uh, uh-huh. but, but it comes across very obvious that you that you're really a big fan of 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 these thirties pulp characters. Um, you know the way you write your dialogue. It's how I imagine um, one of you know Doc Savage being in one of maybe one of the old Republic movie serials of of that day. No, thank you. I you know I I went back. I was familiar with the stuff. I read the Bantam 
in the United States in the 60s and 70s, they reprinted a lot of pulp material, and the most popular reprints were the Doc Savage reprints. Uh, and they had iconic covers painted by a guy named James Bama that everyone... If you have only the vaguest inkling of Doc Savage, you, you have in your mind those old paperback covers. Um, and I read a lot of those when I was a kid, but when I started on this project, I sat down and reread about four or five of the novels, um, particularly the, the, the first one, Man of uh, Bronze, and a handful involving characters I knew I was going to highlight um, in the series, uh, including the villain who is revealed on the last page of issue two. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that was a great reveal as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, some of the fans, and I totally get this, have rolled their eyes a little bit and said, ah, again with John Sunlight? And I reread the John Sunlight novels, and he's such a great character. And I feel a lot of the reboots haven't done him uh, any justice. And when you get to issue three, which comes out a month from today, I would imagine, um, I retell his origin story a little bit. Um, and it's a great it's a great story, and he's a really interesting, compelling character. Doc Savage is alone, I think, uh, in the canon of heroes like him. There are really – everybody has an archvillain. James Bond has Blofeld, you know, uh, Holmes has Moriarty, The Shadow has Shiwan Khan, and actually a handful of other guys. Batman has the Joker, Superman with Lex Luthor. Nash Gordon being the merciless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas uh, Doc Savage, just you, you meet him once and he beats you. <laughs> you never see him again. And uh, John Sunlight only shows up twice in the original Pulse. He's, he's the only guy that ever comes back. Uh, which makes him interesting, but he's also the biggest threat in the hundred and however many novels uh, Lester Dent wrote. No one ever challenges him the way, no one ever challenges Doc the way John Sunlight does, and the way, the specific way in which he challenges him really is a natural for the story I'm telling. Um, in the old pulp novels, uh, John Sunlight is the one man who found Doc Savage's uh, Fortress of Solitude, which it was called long before Superman had one. Yep, I know. And, stuff, and discovers his uh, super science weapons and starts using them against the world. And uh, it's also in a story set in 1938. I, you know, I don't think it's a big stretch to say that the world is on the brink of all of the we the worst weapons of war being invented, devised, and deployed. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a round of that in World War One with aviation and chemical weapons and poison gas and flamethrowers and tanks. Um, and World War Two was just another horrible wave of that. And sitting in between those two wars, you have Doc Savage sitting there tinkering away on just horrible, dreadful weapons and not thinking even a little bit about how they're going to be used in the future. And... Uh, I think it's it's useful to use Doc Savage to ask that question, you know, should we invent things just because they can be invented, knowing that someone somewhere will eventually get around to inventing them. Um, so, like a lot of... Uh, I, I tried to write something that I think you could have written in 1938, even seeing what was coming down the road with atomic science and, you know, bigger and more devastating weapons of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think you've very much succeeded in that. To be honest, um, thank you. you know, so, like, um, a question I've got for you. This is an interesting one. Uh, but um, 
The the character of Doc Savage, we've only ever actually seen a movie of him back in '76 with Ron, Ron Eli, uh, which unfortunately it didn't really work, and it was overshadowed very very much by Star Wars at the time. Um, yeah. As as someone who works in 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 the art of making movies and documentaries as well as writing comics. Uh, what what do you think are the essential elements that 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 a movie producer would need to actually produce a good Doc Savage movie? You know, one that was true to books. Well, I, I think the first Doc Savage movie is very much harmed by it's two years seventy six. I think yeah, it's two years before Superman the movie, the Richard Donner film, and it still has the stink of nineteen sixties TV Batman on it where the idea of doing it seriously and taking it seriously was not even considered um superman my father pointed this out to me when i saw the movie when i was a kid in 78 the first line of the script which is supposedly just jor-el pronouncing sentence on uh general zod he says this is no fantasy and he's supposed to be talking about the charges against general zod but he's really speaking directly to the audience and saying, buckle up, we're not going to be silly. <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're taking this as though it was a thing that happened. We're, we're being serious about something that previously no one's been all that serious about. Um, so I think the first thing, and this is kind of a trend anyway, uh, is to take it seriously. That's what they failed at. And I have a, I have a good feeling about it. Um, a writer-director named Shane Black is supposedly working on it with The Rock. Uh-huh. Doc Savage, which I, I, I think that's actually good casting because it's hard to find a guy that looks like that that can project the necessary intelligence. Um, I would say there is a sort of unofficial Doc Savage movie that's a knockoff imitation uh What's the best word for it? Uh, Tribute, which is the 80s Buckaroo Banzai film, is an attempt to take the idea of Doc Savage, this man who can do anything, who's a, you know, they made him a a rock star and a ninja and a a neurosurgeon, but the original Doc Savage was a concert violinist and a, I think he could also do surgery. I know the doc, he is an actual medical doctor on top of everything else. Um, and that was sort of a loving tribute to the 1930s, but brought up to the present day. Mm-hmm. I like Doc Savage in the 1930s because I also just think it's a fascinating period to write about. I think you could update him to the 21st century without harming the concept as long as you took it seriously enough. Yeah, um, I mean, he's probably an astronaut now as well. Yeah, right. That's an additional. That's that's an additional layer of uh, genius and competence. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai drove the jet car and invented the jet car, and so he was sort of an astronaut. Funny enough, I this is sort of. Uh, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but uh, my artist and I, Dave Acosta, were talking about. We've had a ridiculous number of conversations about Doc Savage's hair because James Bama, for whatever reason. <laughs> painted Doc Savage's hair as this unmovable helmet-like skullcap. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, which, in one of the original novels, I think it may even be in the first novel, Lester Dent describes it as being slicked back like a skullcap, but Bama took that to sort of a ridiculous degree. Um, we compromised in the comic, uh, and I think came up with a good solution where 
yes, it is slicked down like a skull cap, but it is very clearly hair. It's not some crazy thing on sitting on top of his head. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about what you could do. Also, Bama, for whatever reason, partially the age, just the age of the model he was working with, drew Doc Savage as a painted Doc Savage as a fairly old man. Um, like looking easily late fifties, and in the adventures, Doc Savage is at most in his you know mid thirties, early thirties. Um, so we were kicking around, how could you do a story where Doc Savage actually looked like the the iconic James Bama book covers? And I can't remember if it was me or Dave Acosta that came up with it. Might have been Dave. Uh, that an astronaut crew cut where the hair was cut really, really, really short to his skull would look a little bit like that, and he'd be the right age. So we we actually have a pitch. Uh, Dynamite hasn't bought it yet. They may never buy it. They may never be interested in it. Though we were talking about a 60-something-year-old Doc Savage in 1960, 61 as a Mercury astronaut. Cool. <laughs> As one of the first generation of American astronauts. And of course, he's, you know, going to the moon in 61 as part of a secret program that, you know, no one ever told us about, you know, whatever. But uh, it's a, he did a couple of uh, sketches of it, and I gave it the working title, The Savage Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the right stuff, yeah. <laughs> if, if, uh, if Dynamite ever announces The Savage Stuff, you'll know that uh, Joe Rybant gave in and decided to let us try and make that comic. <laughs> it sounds like a fun pitch, actually. I'd, I'd actually go for that if, yeah. I, if I was a, if I was in charge of Dynamite. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Uh, talking about the humour element of uh, a Doc Savage, one thing I've enjoyed in your run today is the uh, throwaway humour at the expense of Superman, which of course eventually wound up borrowing a lot from Doc Savage. Uh, what can we look forward to night like that in future issues without without? too many spy owners maybe i don't i i'm trying to remember if i make another superman joke like that and, and that i have to say i had no plans i hadn't planned on doing that but in issue two <coughs> excuse me i wrote a scene where doc savage jumps out of the bottom of an airplane wearing a scuba suit and a parachute and there are three guys on the bridge of a cruiser watching it happen. And when it came time to write that dialogue, I was like, well, someone could definitely in that situation say, look up in the sky. <laughs> so it just seemed like such a natural, uh, I didn't have to shoehorn it. And I was on, I didn't take it that far. I was unwilling to have a U.S. naval officer be so goofy as to identify a falling man or an airplane as a bird. No one says it's a. No one says it's a bird because I was like, that's to me, that's too jokey, and that's serving the joke at the expense of the comic. Uh, there are some other pop culture references to things at the time coming up. Nothing quite that funny, um, and some references to the 1970s paperbacks a little bit. But uh, I try to keep the sort of what we were talking about before. I try to keep the humor as natural as I possibly can so that it doesn't take the reader too far out of the story. And even that Superman joke, uh, I feel like it's possible that could fly over your head if you weren't paying attention to it. And it happens very early in the comic before the action really gets underway. Yeah, and then, uh, then we have that great panel of the, um, of the dock um, inside the submarine with all the gas. Yeah. That, that was just 
beautiful work from Dave Acosta. Kind of like a... He's, Dave is amazing, and I give him such. <laughs> I I realized as soon as this issue in particular has so many submarine interiors in it, and I know that's not easy to draw. That's a lot of crazy detail, and he did a great job. Um, when we start working, I I start a Pinterest page, the website Pinterest. And just start posting all the photo reference to it. And I'm pretty, I do my best to make sure he's got everything that he needs so that he doesn't have to waste any time uh, looking for a reference on things. Every gun is discussed and posted, every background, every every character. Uh, he doesn't really do, for a whole bunch of good reasons, he doesn't do caricatures of famous people or famous actors. But I always give him actors as a type mm -hmm. and say, this is this is what this guy should kind of look like, uh, this kind of a person. Uh, if you know your old movie stars, Doc Savage is based somewhat on uh, Gary Cooper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I found some old pictures of Cooper with his hair slicked all the way flat to his head and also in ripped up khaki shirts. And I was like, well, here you go. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, and he was tall and muscular. And, uh, and the other aspect of Doc's character, which also goes to some of what I was saying earlier, and I think even this is in Superman a bit as well. He's a thoughtful guy. He's a thinker. He's not a big talker. There's that thing he does of having a silent moment and making a crazy sound while he's thinking about things, which comes up next issue as well. Um, and I like Cooper as a template because Cooper also has sort of a, a sensitive, thoughtful look about him. And I think too many people draw Doc Savage as just this big brute. And he's not a big brute. I mean, he's a big, muscular guy, but he's a physicist and a... You know, he does what he does because he has a bleeding heart for mankind and humanity, even if he's not. His upbringing didn't make him the most normal person mm -hmm. with with the most normal interactions with society. But like Superman, he does everything he does out of a love of humanity and and a desire to a desire to protect civilization. Yeah. And, uh, it's it's like uh, you you say in Aang with the uh, with the villain stealing all his weapons from the fortress. Of from Fortress of Solitude, uh, the Doc would be sort of like agonising goal of that. You know, the fact yeah. that all these weapons have, have gotten out there. Um, yeah, in all, of the, in all of the stories, that's the only, it's remarked on, you know, even in the narrative and by his compatriots that they've never seen him upset. Mm -hmm. They've never seen him rocked and taken out of himself a little bit. And, uh... That's, you know, then there, there's, like I said, there's a reason why every writer that gets a crack at Doc Savage wants to handle John Sunlight, because John Sunlight's the one challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're writing a Superman type, especially the first Superman type, and Doc Savage has no kryptonite. There's no special thing that brings him to his knees except the moral kryptonite of this, you know, of... Uh, what have I unleashed in the world, you know, with my, with my super science? So that's, I think that's why writers are drawn to it. And that's why we, we keep coming back to uh, this core story that challenges Doc Savage's essence. What, one of the uh, other elements about your, 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 your Ring of Fire story is uh, Doc's sister searching for the legendary Amelia Earhart, who famously went missing um, in, in 1938. Um, 
Is she is she going to be remain lost in history, or or is that too much well, of a spoiler? You'll, you'll have to you'll have to stick around for issue four to answer that question. I mean, there's a degree to which it's a funny thing. It always cracks me up a little bit when the nitpickers are like, "Oh, but there was no." I mean, I use a real heavy cruiser as an example. I use the real USS Augusta. The admiral on board the Augusta, Admiral Harry Yarnell, is a real person. But if I made up a destroyer and an admiral, I think that would have been just fine because there was no Doc Savage in 1938. So obviously you're changing history. Um, I play around. There are some things which are incredibly subtle jokes on history and how it worked out. Um, The island in the first issue, Palmyra, in the real world, Palmyra is a coral atoll uh, or atoll. I never know how to pronounce that which is a semicircle of, you know, coral reefs that form an island. So, I mean, and this is about as far from being a funny joke as a joke can be, but in I found the Palmyra Atoll when I was looking for a place to set that scene, and I went, well, okay, so it was an island, and then John Sunlight blew it in half with a volcano, and now it's a coral atoll because that's what's left of Palmyra Island. So I was, I, long story short, I try to do as little damage to real history as possible. Um, apparently someone repairs the USS Augusta in time for it to carry Franklin Roosevelt is meeting with uh, Winston Churchill in 40, 41. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that said, I, I'm not changing history to the degree where Amelia Earhart returns to the United States, runs for Senate, and dies peacefully in a New York suburb in 1959. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I I would not feel comfortable doing that because that's a little too, uh, what's the word? It's a little too much of a wish fulfillment to give Amelia some incredibly happy ending where she gets everything that she deserved and where there's no tragedy associated with her. Mm. Uh, so without telling you too much, you know, obviously, obviously she is a character in the series and I'm not, I'm not faking out the audience by only having her appear in dreams. You definitely, issue three, you spent a lot of time with Amelia Earhart. Issue four, you spent a lot of time with Amelia Earhart. Um, but her final fate um, still leaves her out of the public eye. And that it doesn't, uh, let's put it this way, in in the 2017 that would take place after my 1938, everyone would still think she vanished on her round-the-world tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's... She's my she's my Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones found her, and the government threw her in a warehouse, and we never we never knew that the lost Ark got found. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying the government throws her in a warehouse, by the way. I'm just saying that it's uh it's that it's you know the lost Ark has never really been found. You make a movie about a guy finding the lost Ark, you have to end it with the public never knowing that it was found. Yeah. So this is sort of like that. So she was abducted by the Crystal Schools. Yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and and they locked her in a they locked her in a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, something like that. They locked her in a refrigerator inside a Mayan temple of doom, apparently. Yeah. Um, Dynamite has, um, as, you, as you said, Ian, they have a pretty big uh, catalogue of vintage pulp characters. Um, to date, you've worked on the Shadow, Doc Savage, and Vampirella. Are there any left that you'd like to have a shot at? That's a good question. I have to say, the top of my list coming in would have been The Shadow and Doc Savage, um, like bar none. 
So I'm thrilled, and I'm particularly thrilled. The Shadow thing, I really got to get my hands into the history of that character and say things that I wanted to say about that character. And I'm doing that a lot on Doc Savage. I would love to do more of those characters. And of the pulp characters, Dynamite doesn't have G8, who you may not have heard of, because um, he's never, never really been revived. G8 was this incredibly fantastical World War One flying ace, and they were supposed to be just World War One stories. But he's always the first, the very first pulp with G8. The Germans have giant flying bat creatures that wipe out half the French countryside with poison gas. So they're all of the stories are incredibly crazy and over the top. And I would love to write a G8 story. Of the characters that they definitely have, outside of the pulp stories, they have my childhood hero, the $6 million man. Oh, I yeah. I loved him. And the bionic woman. I would love to do something with those characters. Um, I'm not that interested in the Avenger. But again, the thing is, you know, if you are if you have any sort of passion for this kind of work, you find, like I was about to say, yeah, I'm not that interested in Richard Benson, the Avenger who was a, in the history of Pulps, was sort of the guy that followed Doc Savage and uh, The Shadow. But if Joe called me tomorrow with the with that assignment, I would read up on The Avenger, and I'm sure I would be excited as hell once I got sat down to write that first issue. You know what I mean? You find, that's sort of the job, is you go, what do I like about this? I mean, I liked Vampirella when I was a kid. I wouldn't say I was any kind of rabid fan. Um but, you know, particularly as an aging 1970s era feminist, I loved writing Vampirella. By the, by issue two, I was madly in love with her and crazy about writing her and loving a woman. She's such an unapologetic badass. Mm-hmm. There's nothing even remote, like to the degree of not even being human, but she absolutely takes no shit from anyone no one is her boss. No one pushes her around. No one dominates her. Uh, she's absolutely her own person. And because it was a because it was a steampunk thing, and she was in you know long flowing dresses for you know ninety five out of a hundred pages, I I liked being able to say this character is not that costume. This character is not a monokini. You know that's not. There is way more to her than just that look. Mm. And the fact that that look appears nowhere in the entire series. Um, and I still, I think the fans still liked it. I didn't, I didn't get a lot of bad, I didn't get a lot of bad uh, reviews on that or bad pushback. Yeah, um, so, so all that to say, you know, I don't have any particular passion for the Green Hornet. If Joe assigned me the Green Hornet, by the time I was done with my research, I would probably be excited as all get out to write the Green Hornet. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see another Tarzan uh, story, but one sure. one in which one in which they they actually go more to the Edgar Rice Burroughs material yeah. of of um. There's a there's a famous one where he where he gets to battle against dinosaurs, and right. I'd, I'd love to see Dynamite do something like that where he gets to battle against dino dinosaurs. Yeah, I, can't, I can't remember who's writing Tarzan right now. I'm pretty sure we. Have. Oh, and I will say Dynamite also has. Uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and I would I kill to write that. I, and you know, not pulp characters. I, this is the most obvious one, and it didn't even cross my mind. They have the James Bond franchise, and everyone who writes for Dynamite, I'm sure, is pestering Joe about when do I get to write James Bond. Um, I 
I came up with an incredibly dark pitch <laughs> uh, and passed it by him, even knowing that the job wasn't available. And he's like, yeah, they wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> yeah. My pitch was that, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this because this will never see the light of day as a comic book. I, I basically said, how pitch black are you willing to go with a James Bond series? And he said, well, what do you have in mind? And this is based on thoughts I had at the time. Uh, it's not a conspiracy theory I particularly believe, but it's a compelling one. Basically, a Princess Diana-type character dies in Princess Diana-type circumstances. Uh and M goes to the prime minister and says, of course, MI6 will look into this just to make sure there was nothing, you know, there was nothing about it that, uh, you know, wasn't a foreign assassination or something like that. And the prime minister says, uh, no, that's fine. It's being handled. Don't worry about it. And M eventually goes to James Bond and says, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like being told that the princess dies and we shouldn't look into it. So, of course, Bond finds out that the prime minister has hired an MI6 agent to assassinate Princess Diana. <laughs> well, the, the, the conspiracy theory at the time is that she was marrying, she was in love with an Arab prince who owned a famous department store in London. And that basically the heirs to the British crown were about to become the stepsons of an Arab with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And that there would be forces inside the British government that would strenuously object to that. Uh, but that was my super dark James Bond discovers the British government had Princess Diana killed. <laughs> yeah, he's probably, it's probably, you know, a little bit too close to the reality. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's that too. But yes, Eon Productions is not looking to start a fight with uh, the royal family or the British government. So... That was that was that was deemed to pitch black for uh, for for an official James Bond comic book. <laughs> but I'll, I'll come up with something a little less uh, con controversial for them and hopefully get that through someday. OK, well, me moving on to uh, the next question. Um, do you think that, you know, we're now in kind of like an uncertain world politically and globally? There's a, there's a lot going on. There's. There's a lot of countries that are kind of like veering to the, uh, you know, veering to, to kind of like excluding people from coming into their countries and stuff like that. And um, Trump's on, on the verge of sort of like trying to go to go to war with North Korea. Do you think that sort of environment is actually giving a little bit more power to the old pulp characters? Of late? I think, you know, I, I think that the world goes through periods of volatility, obviously, I remember during, uh, you know, even during the Bill Clinton presidency, looking at what was happening in Russia and in Eastern Europe, you could easily go, hmm, this is a lot like the prelude to World War One." what I'm reading here. Uh, didn't happen. We got lucky and the situation was handled slowly, but relatively well by the Clinton administration. The world is always volatile. Um, someone reminded me, and it was a good wake up call, that if you forget Trump for a moment, all of the things that North Korea is doing, North Korea does that every three months, no matter who's the president of the United States. They say they're going to nuke California. They say they're going to set Tokyo on fire. 
So you do have to take a moment and go, well, the world's always dangerous. All that said, when I started writing Twilight Zone The Shadow, I put American Nazis in it. And American Nazis were very much not a thing people were thinking about when I was writing that. Um, did the rise of what was going on, the populist right wing, I mean, did that creep into my brain somewhere a year and a half ago and make me go, you know, instead of gangsters, why don't I make it American Nazis that The Shadow is fighting? Uh, that's entirely that's entirely possible, and I think that any time the world gets complicated, people want simple solutions, uh, even though there aren't any simple solutions. And the hardest thing in the world is to sell the argument that the world is complicated, and complicated situations require complicated solutions. Uh, Doc Savage and The Shadow are incredibly simple solutions. The Shadow senses the evil in people and kills them outright without a trial, without... And I addressed how crazy that is in my comic. Uh, I didn't make him stop, but I certainly made him think about it. Um, Doc Savage, once, you know, I, I didn't deal with this at all in, in Ring of Fire... But Doc Savage has a, a camp in upstate New York that he sends criminals to, and he essentially lobotomizes them and turns them into productive members of society. Again, without benefit of trial, uh, without them signing a consent form to be operated on. Um, that is a crazy fascist idea. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1930, the crime waves that were going on at the time and with what was going on in the world, the idea of a scientific way to make bad people good was an appealing idea. Yeah, so it's almost uh -huh. like uh, it's almost like the the whole eugenics thing. Oh, it's totally related to that. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally related to eugenics. And you know, and even today, you have you have that idea. You now have the human genome mapped, and you know, will someone find the gene for sociopathy? You know, will someone find the gene for paranoid schizophrenia? You know, and try to eliminate it from mankind. And is that a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, to monkey with it that much. And those are all, like, I guess what I'm saying is, again, yeah, people do get drawn to, I mean, in Trump's appeal to the people whom he appeals is absolutely simplicity. People always ask why, how is it that poor people can vote for not just a rich man, but a crook who has screwed over poor people his entire life? Why do they think that's going to work out for them? And... You know, people can underestimate the degree to which the simple feeling of this guy is a guy like me and he gets me and people like us are going to be on top. Even as he's taking away your jobs and your health insurance, mm -hmm. uh, he's not a lady. He's not a black dude. He's not a guy that expresses any sympathy for people who aren't like me. So clearly he's on my side. You know, uh, people forget Hitler didn't actually help the economy in Germany very much. People were starving during World War II in Germany. And even at a time when moving resources, it shows how deeply this kind of insanity goes. Think about all of the soldiers and technology and money and resources Hitler had tied up in the final solution. You think he couldn't have used a few of those divisions of German troops who were guarding dying Jews at the front lines? But he kept it going. Like, he didn't... He didn't say, you know what, we're losing the war. Let me close down these death camps. We'll stop spending all this money. I could, we could buy more bombers with this money. We could, we could build more things. Like, nope, I 
I'm going to keep it this crazy thing that will absolutely do nothing to help me win this war because it's the crazy thing that I'm dedicated to. Mm-hmm. And that's really that kind of simple mindedness and self-destruction is always there in movements like that. There's always the inability to look down the road. It's like, you know, people say we're getting way away from comic books. But, you know, you talk to, to coal miners, I'm going to bring the jobs back. That was the most transparent plea in some ways. That argument, that particularly Republican conservative argument in the United States is always I'm going to bring back the 1950s when things were better. Of course, the 1950s weren't like that at all. And coal was already on the way out in the 1950s. And the top tax rate for the richest 1% of America was 95%. (laughs) They don't want that back at all. They don't want Eisenhower. Eisenhower is to the left of Barack Obama. But it's that simplicity. It's just that idea of I get to keep my Confederate flags and I get to feel like my white skin and my balls make me better than people who are not white skinned people with balls. Mm-hmm. OK, well, um, you've got um, a new comic book due out in July, uh, yes. which is about a certain Hollywood star of the Golden Age. Um, what can you tell us about this? Um well, you know, Betty, interestingly, was not really a Hollywood star. She was uh, she was a, a pinup model mm-hmm. um, for, frankly, a, a, she's one of those people like Marilyn Monroe and James Dean, whose fame far outstrips the length and depth of the career. She was a model for maybe eight years, if that, not remembering the math. Um, and Dynamite got the, but very influential, and her look was something that people are still imitating to this day. My wife wears her hair in Betty Page bangs. Um, and so Dynamite got the license to do something with Betty. And I think, honestly, as much because of my wife, who's a burlesque star named Penny Star Jr., and who is sort of Betty Page-like, um, they thought I would have a good perspective on this. And also the fact that it was a period story. And they said, hey, Betty Page comic, you know, make something up, do something, you know, find find a way to tell a story about her. And I I read her biographies and watched a documentary. Uh, there's a great documentary, um, which is narrated entirely by Be- Betty Page. So you really you hear her voice and get her perspective on things. Um, and based on that and based on some actually some. Uh, Research I had done for another project, I decided to pop her into Hollywood in 1951. Uh, During that period, she was traveling between New York and Florida a lot. But I figured she could she could have spent a month in Hollywood um, and uh, have her have these fictional exploits, which kind of. I have her interact with sort of all the fun, cliche aspects of 1951, you know, the the Red Scare and. It's just the dawn of B science fiction movies. She ends up starring in a B science fiction movie called Invasion of the Space Commies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 definitely more self consciously comical than anything I've ever written. Because uh, she Betty was a kind of a sharp, funny lady with a very uh, I think you come away with listening to her talk a very clear eyed, unpretentious idea of who she was and what she accomplished in the world. And uh, that's a fun person to take you through uh, an adventure story. So I have her um, in the first issue. 
she, uh, something happens that makes her flee New York and she gets involved with a Howard Stark type who whisks her off to Los Angeles. And uh, I was doing research for this other project and discovered there, there was a fascinating con- uh, connection between the Aleister Crowley cult Thelema Scientology and the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. All kind of revolved around this one guy named uh, Jack Parsons. And I decided to have her essentially get involved with a fictionalized version of Jack Parsons. And it wasn't that far off reality because in her real life, Betty got involved with a really fascinating industrialist designer, uh, scientist, who was also a flashy, handsome dude with a thin mustache named uh, Richard Erbib, who was running around with Betty behind his wife's back. So I sort of fictionalized Richard Erbib, threw in a little bit of Jack Parsons, and uh, came up with a crazy sci-fi action spy conspiracy story for Betty to run around in for four issues. Cool, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, of course, there's also the uh, the uh, fact that Dave Stevens, when he developed the uh, Rocketeer, um, he based uh, the Rocketeer's girlfriend, Betty, on Betty Page. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's where I had probably seen photos of Betty in fan magazines off and on, but uh, Dave Stevens' Betty Page tribute really brought her back into the public eye. That's a completely well-known and uncontroversial thing to say. Um and uh, one of the variant covers which they released is actually a recreation of one of the Rocketeer pages. Cool. Uh, can't remember the name of the artist. Lisner? No, that's a different cover. Again, they're, they, they're issuing like eight variant covers with this one because Betty's fans are such avid collectors and Betty is such a great subject that everybody wants to draw her. Here's a, here's a historical irony connecting my two series that you may not remember in the original rocketeer Mm -hmm. do you remember do you remember who made the rocket in the Um, comic book yeah i do but um i'm 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 sort of reaching for the name but um it was a movies in the movies it's howard Hughes. yep in the movie i should say in the original comic even though his name is never spoken out loud it's doc savage that's one that that invents the rocket pack and it's his two assistants, Monk and Ham. Again, not named, but definitely drawn. Yeah, they they, uh, they do appear. <laughs> they do appear. They're the ones who kick open the door on Betty doing the nude photo shoot. So I just think it's funny that one of my covers has that famous Dave. It's a recreation of that famous Dave Stevens panel of her uh, covering herself as a photographer looks on, surprised with the door busted open in the foreground. It just kind of cracks me up that it's Monk's POV that we're seeing. So that actually connects my Doc Savage comic with my Betty Page comic. Even though I did not, or I have not yet worked in uh, any pulp characters to uh, Betty, I'm leaving that pretty, leaving, leaving Betty pretty much to her own world. Okay. I've got a, I've only got two more questions for you now. Um, uh, one is I've noticed that you've done an episode of How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Um, now I'm just wondering, as someone that's written for zombies, um, in that, what what do you think the appeal is of the, of the zombie genre? Oh, to that, uh, that's a a web series some friends of mine did, and I actually just was the editor on that, which I I literally the the film editor cutting it together. The mm-hmm. the zombie thing, 
I've always felt like zombies are a, they're that Eastern European horror thing, vampires, ghosts, given a science fiction gloss. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you like, really as characters, they're just a compilation of vampires and werewolves. They're human beings who have been turned into something else and are ravenous and want to eat you. So there's that physical feeling of violation, something that just shoots you. We're so picky in a weird way about how we get killed. <laughs> You're just as dead if someone cuts you in half with a machine gun. But the idea of another creature consuming you is particularly nightmarish. It's why people are more afraid of terrorists than they are of the flu. The flu kills thousands and thousands of people around the world every year. Terrorists kill about probably 1% of what the flu kills. But the flu is what? You lie in bed and you cough for a few days and then you're dead. You're not flown into a building on an airplane or blown up by a bomb. So that's scarier. It's like shark attacks. Shark attacks kill like nobody every year. You know, five, ten people compared to falling down the stairs. No one's afraid of falling down the stairs. Really well, Donald Trump seems to be afraid of falling down stairs, but most people are not afraid of falling down the stairs, even though or driving a car. Driving a car is about a million times more likely to kill you than anything. But we have this horror of two things. One, of being consumed, of being eaten. And two, of the people we know and love no longer recognizing us and wanting to kill us. Like, there's a, there's a deep-seated paranoia of betrayal. And I think that zombies, like werewolves, like vampires, are that, that deep-seated fear of not trusting your neighbor to be human. Not trusting people to behave in a human way. Uh-huh. And I think that's, that's where people, that's where people really... And, you know, we've had zombies, we've had a variation of zombies for many, 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 many years that, you know, the whole Haitian zombie phenomenon. But, you know, and the mummy is essentially a zombie wrapped in an ape's bandage. You know, it's not a terribly different idea. But uh, particularly, and I'll call them Romero zombies, because basically every zombie thing you see now is a lift on George Romero's reinvention of the idea with Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh Everyone since then has put the fig leaf of science fiction over what is a fantasy idea. There's always a virus. There's always a, you know, chemical weapon or uh, something from outer space that infected everybody, which seems more 20th, 21st century than saying a witch cursed a guy. But when you try to (laughs) when you try to look at zombies as a science fiction idea, it falls apart really fast and becomes no more rational than as a, a, a witch put a curse on a guy, <laughs> you know, or he was he was bitten by a dog and turned into a thing. That's you know? that's kind of why that's kind of why I asked that question actually because that's that's kind of way the way I think of it is um, you know the the rationale for it um, in in science fiction versus what you just said. So. Yeah, and and to be honest, that's where a lot of zombie stuff essentially loses me because. To me, science fiction is about what-ifs and taking what-ifs to their logical conclusion and coming up with something interesting based on that. Um, And I was reading, someone posted this, I'm sure you probably heard about it, but some scientist said, or possibly a zoologist said, the thing about a zombie apocalypse is between birds and vermin and worms, the zombie apocalypse would be over in about three months because animals would eat them. (laughs) <laughs> like, di- 
that, that you know they don't seem like they could defend themselves from a pack of hungry coyotes, as an example, or depending on where you are in the world, hyenas or bur- birds would just peck the brains out of their skulls, and then maybe you'd have zombie birds or not. But to me, good science fiction keeps asking questions. And something like The Walking Dead, the first season I found to be compelling science fiction, even though it did still sort of violate any sort of rules of science. But as it goes on, it's like they're not asking those questions. They're asking questions that literally you could ask in any end of the world scenario. But the zombies are treated like a natural force you can't ask any questions about. I'm going to get all sorts of people throwing hate messages at me on Twitter now. Oh, yeah. Because um, I kind of got bored of The Walking Dead. Um, I got oh, about, I got about, I got about uh, not quite halfway through the second season and I just switched off. Yeah, I stayed with it probably into the third season, but it was, it was reflex more. I wasn't particularly... I wasn't particularly enjoying it, and I didn't particularly enjoy what they did with the characters. But, you know, the science thing, just to wrap that up. In the first, I think it's even the first episode of The Walking Dead, there's a, a zombie crawling towards him. That's a torso and arms and a head. And just the part of me that can't stop thinking about reality and science went, wait a minute, that's a creature with no digestive system. How can it want to eat something? <laughs> like what like what virus makes an animal not have to eat to live but have to think that it has to eat to live even though it can't absorb food wouldn't an animal without a digestive system be dead in mm, three hours stops no matter what alien virus was animating it also, and you start asking you start asking those questions and then the whole house of cards falls apart pretty quick also you know um with them zombies and with them going around eating so many people on a daily basis how come that how come the roads and everything are so clean yeah <laughs> well and and also at one you know it's supply and demand there are a lot of zombies and not a lot of survivors and the survivors escape a lot wouldn't they like when you see a crowd of a thousand zombies chasing three people even if they catch them 30 zombies catching three people i'd say half of those zombies aren't going to get any food and they're going to die <laughs> but that never you they never do storylines about them dying off because there aren't you know the evolution stops dead at the idea of and now there are zombies and then they sort of stop thinking about it mm-hmm. you know and at least in 28 days later they had the idea of the blood carrying the contagion so that, yeah, if you got a drop of blood from a zombie in your mouth, you're probably also going to get the virus, you know? So, anyway. Okay, well, we, my... Let the hate, let the hate mail com- commence from those who love love the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite looking forward to it. I kind, kind of enjoy reading hate mail sometimes. It's quite <laughs> funny. <laughs> Um, my uh, my my last question for you is: you you've got a couple of documentaries in the works, and I'm just wondering if you'd like to tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, last year I edited this documentary, and I did some producing on it uh, called "With One Tied Hand," which is about uh, an African American soldier, 92 now, who served in Italy in World War Two, and. Uh, through happenstance, became friends with a woman who runs a bed and breakfast in one of the towns he liberated, and she brought him back. 
And he basically saw how, you know, he returned from World War II to a racist Jim Crow America in the 40s. And unbeknownst to him, Italians were celebrating black soldiers every year on the anniversary of their uh, liberation. And just to discover a country where he's not only remembered but literally beloved and embraced. Uh, and even as America has changed over the past 70 years, uh, Italians never forgot the men who uh, liberated their towns from the Nazis and from the fascists. So that's kind of an interesting story. That's finished and looking for distribution. I think we've got distribution on that. I'm not clear where it is as of like today. And uh, right now I'm editing a documentary on uh, General Pershing, the American general who uh, led American forces in World War One, And we're coming. We just passed the one year anniversary of America's entry into the war, the 100 year anniversary of America's entry mm-hmm. into the war. Um, and by this time next year, we'll be close to we'll be moving towards the end of the first world war. Um, yeah. And he's kind of an interesting Pershing's kind of an interesting fellow for his time and place. He's not quite the cliche American general from the period that you might think he is. So we went to uh, went to France in last September and visited all the battlefields. And uh, the interesting thing, the last thing I'll say about the documentary, the interesting thing is General Pershing created a legacy in the United States military there's a thing called the Pershing Rifles, which mm-hmm. is sort of a fraternity of uh, military academy students. Colin Powell is a graduate of the Pershing Rifles, as an example. Um, and what we decided to do to make the documentary different from other documentaries about you know, the past and about things where everyone who witnessed the story is dead is we brought these military school students who are contemporary, who are 17, 18, 15, 16, and brought them with us. And so instead of being musty college professors in bow ties sitting in front of rows of books saying, and then Pershing did this and then Pershing did that, you're seeing these kids being told the story of the legacy that they themselves are continuing. So that's sort of the the thing that makes it unique is you're seeing the story of General Blackjack Pershing through modern teenagers who are, you know, who have literally have his name on their uniforms. Cool. I quite like the sound of both of those. Um, The first one sounds interesting to me because it sounds a little bit similar to, you know, Tuskegee Airmen. Um, yeah. stuff like that and also um the film that they've done this year about the uh about the um nasa the nasa mathematicians hidden yeah. figures yeah hidden figures yeah it's yeah. a very similar people don't realize that you know even though the army was very heavily segregated and even though they did relegate african-american men mostly to support positions there were infantry combat units there were a lot of them and they fought some of the ugliest parts of the war and they fought it with incredible bravery and uh this guy is is a real hero and his story is worth telling Mm -hmm. well david thanks very much for your time it's been absolutely brilliant speaking with you and um we'll have to have you on again at some point you know when 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 you have a few more comics um on 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 the boat that we can go back to and discuss absolutely i'd love to hey everybody this is nick tarabay uh asher and uh, spartacus got to the arena spartacus blood and sand and uh, i'm here at sfp now keep listening and thank you so much 
And, you know, I'd like to thank David Avenoli for his time. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed speaking with him. You know, we, we, we sort of like uh, ha had a lot in common in terms of the, the Pulp Heroes, um, and I really enjoyed uh, doing that interview. Um, joining us now is Raisa Devereaux. Um, you know, the... Uh, for, for TV talk, is is it Devereaux? Is it? Is it's Devereaux. It's Devereaux. Yes, you got it right. Yeah, so, so that X is silent at the end. Yes, so yes like it is. So it's not uh, Devereaux. No, no. <laughs> Although I've heard that before. It's been butchered any number of ways over the years. Yeah, well, well looking at, um, with with me being from, from the UK, uh, we kind of learn French words. Mm. Um we learn them, you know, we learn them, then we unlearn them because there's nothing more more that we like doing is, you know, pissing the French off. And <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> joking. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the moment, our government's doing a great job of pissing the rest of Europe off. But that's not, you know, that, that you know, we better leave it right there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for any, anyone in Europe that's listening, by the way, I voted to remain. So, you know, don't don't come after me with your hatchets. <laughs> okay, well, uh, TV talk. This week, um, it's been a fantastic week. Because, um, uh, should we start off with the uh, big, big show this week? Yes. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the first four episodes, so I can take the conversation on an extra, you know, for an extra week on this. I can, and, I... I haven't seen, I've seen the first episode and I took a week to work through the 19 hour unabridged complete novel as an audiobook. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, we can, we can chat. Yeah. There's actually a, there's actually a six, six and a half hour version of the audiobook on YouTube that people can listen to as well. So you know, that's yeah. probably worth it. Um, so we'll start off with um, American Gods. Yeah. And the first, the first thing that uh, people who haven't read the book need to know is that it is, in fact, a single book. It's a single long book. It is uh, 784 pages, 19 hours if you do it as an audiobook, mm -hmm. which I did. And it's long enough and detailed enough. He went to town on the world building. He, it was sort of a uh, world building as plot exercise. Mm -hmm. um, he went to town on the world building to such an extent that they can easily get three seasons out of the book as written and maybe another season or so just off of his uh, Gaiman's uh, expansion packs because they've actually got him as an executive producer and writing for the series as well. Yeah, well, he's, he's actually talking about doing a sequel book. He already has kind of. It's called uh, Anansi's Boys. I haven't read it yet, but it's it's about half the length of the original, and it's and it's about the sons of Anansi, who is one of the gods featured in mm -hmm. uh, the book. And DC fans will know Anansi as the source of the vixen's uh, totem's power. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been reading the uh, comic book. Um, adaptation of the book and I've read the first issue and there's a few changes that are glaringly obvious that, that have been made to the uh, TV series. For example in the TV series um, he meets Mr Wednesday twice before deciding that he's going to work for him whereas in, in the book it's kind of it's kind of like once. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also in the book uh, his wife Laura is a travel agent. Yes. Um, and his tickets are already pre-booked for him to travel. Um, yeah. Whereas 
in, in, in TV series, his tickets are not booked to travel. But that makes sense dramatically for the TV series because it allows for some interesting things to happen. Yes, and plus I read in an interview where Gaiman talked about the fact that because he wrote the book and got it published in 2001, um, travel agents of the sort that Laura is in the original book just don't exist anymore. So he had to change what she did for a living just because what she did for a living isn't a thing as such anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, at least not, not, at the, not at the more local level. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I need to mention also is that what I read was the, um, the expanded sort of director's cut version of the book that was put out for the, the 10th anniversary. And he, uh, Gaiman narrated the uh, foreword for the book himself, as well as the Coming to America uh, vignettes. He, he narrated that himself, those himself. And one of the things that he said was actually kind of poignant in the foreword for the 10th anniversary book is that after the book was published, one of his first uh, gigs in 2001 for, for autographs and whatnot was at a bookstore in the Twin Towers. Wow. And he pointed out that the bookstore in the Twin Towers would be gone within months. And, you know, and he was very aware that 10 years had gone by. And that uh, at that point, 10 years had gone by. And he he felt the shifts in, in the world and that he felt how things had changed and remained the same. Mm-hmm. So and so he, he, he understood the power of, of what he had written in the context he had written it in at the time. Uh-huh. Well, the, uh, you know, the series, moving back to the series, I've, I, I really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed what I've seen. Um, yes. The fourth episode, which you, you, which you won't get to for another three weeks, that actually deals with uh, Laura and Shadow's backstory. Mm, good. And, and, yes, good. And it ends um, where the third episode ended, sort of thing. Oh, Okay. Um, so, so, so basically, that's a, that's kind of giving you a middle clue without giving anything away. Yeah, sort of having read the book, I can I can guess, and I'm I'm glad to I've read in interviews that one of the things they did for the adaptation for Stars was they expanded the female roles because mm-hmm. um, the 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 female characters were not as prominent in the book. Yeah, I mean, what what did you reckon to the uh, the whole? Uh, is it is it? Uh, well, I won't say I won't say the uh, name. I think it's Bilkis. Bill uh, Bilquis. Bilquis. Yes. Or the yes. Queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba, and uh, she's a piece of work, and I'm glad that they managed to keep the uh, keep her entrance basically as written. I thought, uh, damn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's all like. Um, it's kind of like uh, when, 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 when guys are joking around with each other and they say, oh, you don't want to go with her, she'll eat you up. Yes. <laughs> that's quite literal. Yeah, <laughs> in the, yeah. In the book. And and she, that's funny. She's one of the characters that's going to be expanded. It's kind of interesting because in the book, she's in that, that memorable entrance, and then you don't see her for a long time, and then you only see her for about a, a scene and a half additionally farther in the book, and that's it. Yeah, well, you, you're going to see her again in episode two. Um, awesome. And and basically in episode two, um, she has she she has a, a whole scene where it's a montage of her different lovers and conquests. And, oh, okay. And the scene actually ends where she goes to a museum exhibit, which is in homage to her sort of thing. Oh, cool. Um, 
and 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 that song I could the bring it all cut away in episode uh, two. Um, but I I'm finding her character really really intriguing. Um, you know, and I kind of want to know more. Yes, because you know, well, seeing her worshipped is 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 what is, is fine and dandy. But I I just want to know you know what motivates her. You know, what is this? What is going on? Um, I was pleased to see that my favorite, one of my favorite gods is introduced in season, in uh, episode two as well. We're going to get Anansi, who is absolutely one of my favorite gods in the book. Yeah, he's, uh, we, he's right at the very beginning, actually, of episode two. Yeah, good, good. Um, it, um, it basically, he, 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 takes, he takes on, you know, one of the coming to America scenes cool also i wanted to bring up that in the coming to america scene in the first episode um that we get in the context of shadow reading one of his books the man who is narrating that book the voice that you hear narrating it as as it it fades into that flashback sequence um is one of the god characters that we'll meet later Uh Uh, yeah so i thought i thought it might have been neil gaiman actually but never mind (laughs) no not it wasn't him no i wish i wish it would have been awesome yeah. I've never actually really heard him talk because uh, I've not really listened to any audio interviews. I've read interviews with him, but he's he he's got a great voice for narration. It's like he was born <laughs> he's born to narrate his own stuff. <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be cool. Um, we also meet um, we meet the goddess Media in episode two as well. Oh yes, thank you. They brought in Gillian uh, Anderson mm-hmm. to play her. Well, she's she's interesting. It's, She's cool. It's actually quite a fun scene that she has in episode two. Um, and th- this is going to be a little bit of a spy on her. Uh-huh. But she actually appears to him um, in a television screen as Lucille Ball. Lucy, I'm glad they kept it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they kept it because that scene's in the book. And it's 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 awesome. Yeah, well, it, it really works. It's, it's actually, it works crazily well in the, um, in, 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 in the TV series um, sort of thing. But... I, I like the um, I love the fact that his cellmate in prison was Loki. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought that was actually quite 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 clever and um I'm I'm really enjoying Mad Sweeney as well, the the, the seven foot Meprico. Yeah, we're we're gonna see Mad Sweeney again and Mad Sweeney Mad Sweeney fucked up. He yeah. fucked up badly. Yeah, we, we we you know you kind of see you kind of see the results of that with Laura. Yes, um, that's um, basically how he fucked up. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's just um, I, I'm really enjoying it. Ian McShane is just made for the role of Mister Wednesday. That, he's, he's, he's awesome. awesome. He's awesome. I mean, you know, it's caught, it, his performance as Mister Wednesday kind of reminds me of his performance as Lovejoy on on mm. so many levels. It's 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 totally crazy. Oh, only obviously Mr. Wednesday is a lot more crafty and devious than, than Lovejoy was. Yeah, um, and for those who are unfamiliar with who Wednesday is and have, and have kept yourselves um, unspoilers, unspoilered um, in terms of... It's Odin. Terms, yeah, he's Odin. Um, Wednesday uh, because is... Because Wednesday giveaway. is Odin's day. Is Odin's day, yeah. You know, so... Um, I think I think basically most most people that uh, are amateurs in mythology will know that much. Will know that much, yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, Thursday is Thor's day. It's Thor's day, yeah. and regrettably, we find out what happened to Thor, and it's not nice. Yeah, yeah I bet it isn't. <laughs> um, but I, I I I've enjoyed the I've enjoyed the first four episodes. I've got got to be honest, and I can't wait for episode five. Yeah, I say. <laughs> And like you said in your review, it's a great series to watch while you're waiting for Game of Thrones. So, mm, 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're actually bigging up and saying that it's going to be the next Game of Thrones. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I think that's already been done with Westworld. It's kind of already been done with Westworld, plus because it's only based on one novel, um, mm. it's more of a limited event, event series because I, I don't see it going on much past four years, even with the additional material from Gaiman, because it is only one novel. I mean, granted, it's a long novel, but it's only one novel. I think if they keep it to three seasons um, and keep the seasons short at eight yeah. episodes, you'd probably have a high quality series. Yes, right there you, that you, that people go that people go back to. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, because it is one of those. You know, I, I've watched the pilot episode twice, um, and you know, I'm 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 going to be watching the uh, second episode again next week. Mm. Sort of thing. Because it's on Amazon here in the UK, um, ah. you know, so Amazon Prime have picked it up. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really good series. Um, for those that have not seen it, get hold of it on catch up. You won't be disappointed. No, it's it's wonderful. It's quite wonderful. And and Ricky Whittle, you know, he he's proving he can act. Yes. You know, so like, um, unfortunately, he's been in stuff that hasn't really challenged him. No, I mean, and he and Ricky Whittle is going to be put through his paces because if they stick to the book to the to the degree that they've shown they're going to in the first four episodes, even even with slight changes for structural reasons, um, Shadow gets put through eight and a half ringers by the by the end of of the story. So Whittle is going to have material. So basically, it's kind of like the. Uh... The Twelve Neighbors of Hercules. <laughs> it's 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 a variation, yeah. And at the by the end of it, you're gonna um, you're you're gonna basically love to hate Wednesday. Mm. By the end of it, yeah. Well, Wednesday's quite a shifty bugger. I mean, yeah. you know, we meet Cherno. Is it Chernobog? In in Chernobog, yes. Chernobog in the second episode. Yeah. And and he has quite a, a meaty role in the second and third episode. Um, and you, you probably know what I'm referring to there as well, having read yes, the book. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but it's sort of like, um, the way it plays out, it's kind of freaky <laughs> when, when you yeah, see it on TV. Yeah, it's, it's freaky. And the, the interesting thing is if you've made it all the way through either the, the original book or the comic adaptation, um, the characters that we meet at the beginning are threaded throughout. There are payoffs for all the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know, it isn't just one of those things where he's na- name dropping gods and moving on. They all have parts to play in what in what we see going forward. Yeah, well, we've not we've not really seen uh, much of the comic yet. The comic uh, basically got to it got it got to the so like um, I think there's actually a little bit more in episode one of um, of American Gods than there is in the comic. Mm, the comic okay. the comic. Mm ended the first issue just a little bit short uh, uh, of, of that you know i can't remember okay. exactly where it ended but it was a little bit short of what we see in episode one okay but it's still a good read uh. um and i think neil gaiman's got a hand in that as well and he's kind of like yeah and which it. makes sense because he's done comics too so yeah he's not written the comic it's, it's someone else is adapting it but i think yeah i think um he's he's basically consulting on it to make yeah editing it. it yeah that kind of thing no. yeah okay so. um so what should we move on to now uh let's do doctor who Ooh. yes sorry <laughs> i enjoyed the last episode I enjoyed it a lot. And I have to say I'm already enjoying the contrast with Clara because we had 
at a more serious level, we had Bill confronting the doctor on the darker elements of his past. And, you know, based on what happened with Clara, you know, she had basically an existential crisis because she was traveling with the man who did this stuff, whereas Bill was unhappy about it and, mm-hmm. and, and, pro- and expressed her anger and processed her anger, but dealt with it in a more mature way. Yeah, I, I actually really like Bill. Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about her going in. Yeah. Um, because there was all this hoopla about her being the first gay open gay companion. Yeah. And I was an open gay full time companion, and I thought, yeah. okay, but why are they making such a big deal of it? Thankfully, it's not it's not been written in such a way that they're making a big deal of it. No, you know? it's it's an element of what's there, and yeah. I and I'm and I'm certain that we'll see Heather again by the end of her arc. Mm-hmm. Which is they, they I, spent too much time setting that up. It's but. something I was really worried about with the amount of hoop now that was going on in the press. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And, and stuff like that. Um, it's often quite worrying that. And um, while I'm speaking to you here, uh, Pepper Cat's trying to get herself onto the window edge, and she's destroying my curtains. Oh dear. <laughs> um, so I better help her out. Give me a second. Okay. You wanna go on there? You don't wanna go on there? What are you doing? Don't you wag your tail at me, madam. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh yeah. Um the joys of having um, having a cat that can't make her mind up. Okay. And now she wants to go in there. Okay, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the uh, the whole the whole package really, and um, it's obvious who's in the boat now. It's one of the masters. It's got yeah. it's got to be the master because of the knocking. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be writing an article um, about that for Monsters and Critics actually tomorrow, and that'll go up on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, who is the master? Yes. You know, just as a primer for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it, it's obvious it's it's going to be the master. Um, mm-hmm. But getting back to the actual episode itself, I really enjoyed the fact that it was sort of like uh, that the the um, alien under the ice uh, yes. turned out to be harmless. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed the fact that the doctor put you know put the fate of the alien in Bill's hands as well. Yeah, I also appreciated the fact that the doctor actually punched the guy's lights out because you don't see the doctor do that. So you know that if he's going to actually go to the point of punching a guy's lights out, he's, it's got to be for a big reason. And it was. Indeed mm. it, um, it, it, it was. And it's sort of like it, it, that's actually quite a big sea change for Doctor Who because, um, you know, throughout the, uh, throughout the 70s run, he was pretty much a pacifist. He, he was nonviolent. Yeah. He'd usually solve, solve problems with his wits. Yeah. Um, he, even when he was at his wits' end, he'd solve his pro- solve the problems with his wits, sort of thing. But yeah, I, I guess they've had to update him somewhat to 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 react to to certain situations. And you know, like for example, we had Matt Smith start to using a gun. Yes, he you know, wasn't shooting at people, but he was using a gun. Yeah, he, he wasn't shooting at people, as you said, but he was using a gun, which is something you'd never have seen. And and that's naturally evolved onto a Peter Capaldi's Doctor punching someone's lights out. But that said, it's not new to Doctor Who because in the uh, very very first series, William Hartnell, um, the first story about the caveman is actually seeing where it's about to smash a caveman's head in with a rock. 
Yes. If only, yes, if, it wasn't for, if, only if it wasn't for Ian and Barbara stopping him. Yes. Sort of thing. So, you know, it shows that the intent is there uh-huh. or has been. But uh-huh. I enjoyed it on so many levels. You enjoyed the nights under the under the ice, uh, the, the sort of like the street urchins. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. all, it was all there. I was actually surprised that they went and killed a kid. I mean, they they drag one of the one of these little street urchin kids under the ice. That's not a small thing. It's not you know, for a for a family show. No, yeah. not at all. And if Mary Whitehouse was still alive, she'd be complaining to the BBC about it. Yeah, I thought about her when I watched. I'm like, <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of miss I kind of miss the old dear to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, I wonder what she'd make of reality TV. Oh God. <laughs> You know, then she would have a problem with that, and um, you know, certainly she'd have issues with American gods, with it being sort of like about um, about the old gods, yeah, yeah, sort of thing. Um, she'd have issues with that, but yeah, it's. Um, I I I think it was an enjoyable episode. I think Dominic, who reviewed it, quite enjoyed it as well. Yes. Um, and you know, I've got I've got to say, I'm, I've been really impressed with his reviews so far. He's doing a good he's job. Doing, he's, he's doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, he even got a few classic series references in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although um, you know the 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 review he did for the last episode, the um, the one with the, uh, the 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 emoji robots. Yes. You kind of um, kind of compared that with robots of death, and thought, no, don't see the comparison. No. You know, but I, I guess, you know, sort of like um, in, in a modern context, it, it is sort of like similar. But, yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah, he, he's doing pretty good, I think. Uh-huh. He's, um, that's it. And, you know, sort of like it's saving me from doing it. So <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> um, not, that I, not that I didn't like doing the reviews. It just uh-huh. kind of like took away from my enjoyment of the series a little bit, having to analyse it that yeah, much. yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anything else that to related? No, I think I think we've covered it. Um, although, I'd like to plug an essay that I wrote for Sci-Fi Pulse uh, called uh, "Hoovian Musings: Twelve's Promise," mm-hmm. in which I in which I dealt with not the content of the vault, but what I think the context of the content of the vault is. Yeah, it's 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 funny that because that that actually got a lot of a uh, lot of feedback on Facebook. And we had one person say, well, did, didn't this person watch the series? Clara wipes his memory and stuff like that. And I just saw, like, turned around, I saw, I saw, like, said to this person, read the goddamn article. Never mind reading, you know, the top line and the and, and the heading. Just read the article. Yeah. <laughs> because you explain that. Yes. Um, in, in plain English, in such plain English that even I could understand it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but this this person obviously, you know, just read the read the heading and didn't bother to read the article to sort of like yeah, get where no. it's coming from. Um, no. But it did really well for us that article. Um, so you know, that's that's that that that, that was a you know a really well written piece, and I actually enjoyed reading it. Yeah, and I, I was gonna I was gonna do a follow up where I discussed my theory on the content of the vault, but it's not necessary now. Yeah, it's kind of been made mute. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean that. Mm. I, I was quite surprised that they gave it away so soon. I yeah. thought they were going to drag it out for at least another two weeks. What they're, what they're probably going to do is the twist of it is going to be that it's, it's Sim's master and not and not Missy's master. And so we're going to get some sort of timey-wimey transitional thing because we know that they're both going to show up. 
I've got a theory actually about the master, about 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 Mrs. Master. Go ahead. I don't think she's actually the next incarnation on from Sim. I think she's a version of the master from a parallel dimension. Ooh, that would be interesting. You know, um, because so like it's dealt with time travel the series, but it's hardly ever dealt with parallel universes. Uh, there's only two instances: one being the uh, creation of the Cybermen in, yeah. in the new series, Law. And the mm-hmm. other one being a John Pertwee episode. Inferno, yes. Inferno, where he, where he, where he goes back and he, he goes into a, a parallel universe where UNIT are kind of like a Nazi organisation. Yes, yes. You know, so I, I think, you know, I think it'd be actually be fun if, if mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the missus from, you know, a version of Master from Parallel mm-hmm. Dimension... Where the Time Lords are actually a more of a, 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 a matriarchal society instead of a patriarchal society. That would work. And and apart from anything else, it's just because uh, we've never had um, a multiple master episode on the canon show. I think Big Finish has done one, mm-hmm. but I don't think we've had a multiple master story for the canon show. So because we've had, you know. Uh, multiple Doctor episodes out the wazoo, but we've never had a multiple Master one, so that'll just be fun at the performance level. Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. would. I mean, you know, I actually, you know, although I had problems with Missy initially, um, I've always enjoyed, uh, is it Gomez? Um, Gomez, Michelle Gomez. Michelle yes. Gomez's um, interpretation, the way she yes. plays her. Um, because although it's kind of a little bit over the top, it's actually mm-hmm. quite subtle in comparison to... The, you know, yeah. the over-the-topness, which is Sim. Um, yeah. In fact, I'd compare her interpretation of, of, of Missy, um, or the Master, to sort of like, it's probably the, close, it's probably the closest um, a female version of the character could actually get to, say, Delgado or Anthony. Yes, Annie. yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's that, it's that level of performance and level of uh, theatricality to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, I kind of like the idea that she's sort of like an evil Mary Poppins. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> she they they've they've caught that perfectly. So they've absolutely caught that perfectly. Okay, so um off of dot two to Agents of Shield. Yes. Or Agents of Hydra. Yes. And the the episode we're talking about now is the brilliant one where um uh Daisy gets her powers back and immediately sends Madame Hydra out a window yep. to the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ma- Madame Hydra is aroused by her Russian henchman. Yeah. Um, she comes out of the mainframe and she goes yeah. back in. Um, I love the fact that uh, Fitz is still, he's kind of beginning to have doubts, but he's still kind of like running things as if as if things were the status quo. Yes. Um, yeah. And kind of like his father um, intervening sort of thing as well. Oh, yes, yes. You know, that, 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 that's sort of like a, an interesting relationship they've got going on there. Um, but I, 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 it's just about time May change sides back to Shield. Yeah, you know yeah. they they kind of I think they I, I think if they'd held her in 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 Hydra any longer than they did, it just wouldn't would wouldn't have worked. No, no, because she was out of the series such a long time. Yeah, yeah, and um, couple one announcement for those who don't know, um, Ghost Rider is returning for the finale. Yay! Yes, <laughs> you know I have to say. I had my doubts about Ghost Rider coming in because I had seen the god-awful Nicolas Cage films and Gabriel Luna justified bringing Ghost Rider back because Gabriel Luna did what Cage couldn't, namely he committed 
Mm-hmm. He committed, and he absolutely played Robbie Reyes to the hilt properly. Yeah, the trouble is with Cage, he, you know, he saw that, he, he did it in the form of, oh, it's just a popcorn movie, I'll just, I'll yeah. do yeah. my thing and get paid, and that'll be it, sort of thing. Can you imagine Nicholas Cage as Superman? He was actually in line to play Superman at one point. I know, I know, I know. I, I remember. Awful. I remember thinking that just be awful. He's completely the wrong build. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's not not really attractive enough to be Superman. <laughs> so like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. He'd he'd work better as a super villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, I'm quite happy that uh, Ghost Rider's coming back. Uh, but back onto the episode. Um, I enjoyed the, uh, you know, the confrontation between Mac and Agent May. Yes. You know, yes. Mac, Mac was so ready to shoot her there and then, based, uh-huh. based on what she'd made him do, uh-huh. sort of thing. But um, so I, I kind of enjoyed that, and uh, you know, also Coulson coming back to himself as well. Yes, or or more to himself. Mm-hmm. It's apparently going to come to a head in tonight's episode where they're going to have to actually get the the team members who aren't awake yet awake and the heck out of there yeah so. i'm kind of looking forward to that i'll probably be watching that tomorrow at some point cool. um but yeah so um, i i think this whole mainframe idea has just been been re- the framework idea has been really good I've, i really mm-hmm. enjoyed it because it's given us opportunity to see these characters um as they would be in a different universe and you know see them play differently yes and I have to say, I've enjoyed the whole season structurally in that they've logically been able to go from Ghost Rider to LMD to the framework with the um, with with the the Darkhold as the thread that binds it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I I've actually enjoyed that as well. Um, and I've just got to say, if if the series doesn't get picked up for a f- fifth season now, it's sort of like it, it's just a ter- tragedy, you know. Yeah. Given given that they've they've sort of like suddenly found um, a structure that works. Yes. Um, so I think maybe the first first season was kind of relying on the Avengers movie, mm-hmm. you know, t- tying in with the the, the 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 second Avengers film, or is it the Captain America film? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was Captain America 2, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, and the, the third season, you know, um, was The Inhumans. Yes. Which was pretty good. Yeah. They, the problem with The Inhuman season is it was supposed to tie in with an Inhumans movie, which became the Inhumans TV show that we're going to see mm-hmm. uh, this fall. So The Inhumans season uh, got discombobulated because they decided not to do the movie after all, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I'm quite... Quite looking forward to the Inhuman series. Yes. Uh, see, see what happens there. Um, you know, it's, it'll probably be more down my street than Legion was. Yeah, Legion. Legion, I I got gave up after a couple episodes because they were just not talking to me. Um, I'm I'm the audience for the Inhuman series that they're planning, if only because they're giving us Lockjaw, cool. the giant dog. So yeah, I mean, Legion's probably something I'd watch if you, you know, if it was in a mood for it. Yeah. But it's not something I could watch um, at a set time or you know or or whatnot. It's sort of like it's something that I've got to be in the mood for. Ring. It was it was too art it was too art house for me, and the art house elements were covering up um, plot elements that I had seen done before and just wasn't in the mood for, mm-hmm. and uh, it just didn't work. Yeah, watch American Gods, much better show. Yes! <laughs> so, like, Basically. 
Um, so, any news stories we should talk about um, now that we've finished Agents of Shield? Um, I, th- I think the fact the fact that um, Gabriel Luna is coming back for the finale is is the big one mm-hmm. in terms of the in terms of the shows that we've covered. Um, there is a Doctor Who theory you know, that was covered in um, uh, the uh, Radio Times, uh, where they were were speculating that. Uh, for the Christmas episode for Capaldi's regeneration, what we're going to get is a team up of Capaldi's twelve and the first Doctor, played by David Bradley again, because he played him in the um, he played William Hartnell in the Adventures in Space and Time, mm-hmm. and only this time he'll get to actually play the first Doctor, the way William Herndl did for the um, mean five Hartnell. Doctors episode in '83. Yeah. Oh, William Herndl in the uh, wait, William Herndl. Yes, sorry, yeah. and. Um, um, and so that's the theory. And so what the plot of the Christmas episode is supposedly going to be is that we're going to get the um, the freezing of Gallifrey from the 12th Doctor and the 1st Doctor's perspective instead of uh, 10, 11, and War. So they're going to they're gonna rehash the 50th anniversary special from different perspectives. And the the scene where Capaldi, where we see we see we see Capaldi's you know death stare in the in the 50th anniversary as his debut, is actually going to be him regenerating, regenerating, or just before his regeneration. And so, and so they, it's going to structurally go full circle. That would um, be really cool if they did that, but you know, so like um, I've got a feeling we're going to be disappointed. Probably one of the reasons I went with the theory I did in my essay um, with the first doctor's involvement was because of, of that educated rumor from from um, from uh, from um, Radio Times. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'll be correct or not. It'd be cool if it if it if it does turn out to be something like that, but I just got a feeling I'm gonna be disappointed. Yeah. Um, because by by the very nature, Christmas episode. Um, although admittingly, they didn't go fall into the trap last year. The Christmas episode yeah. had nothing to do with Christmas last year, which and was, was one. It was one of the better ones they've had in a while. Well, yeah, it was actually the best one they've had in a while. Um, I mean, I think the best ones that did that 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 they've done really is the. Um, I thought the first one with Tenant was good. Yes, that was good. <coughs> um, um, the um, and the one with uh, Matt Smith, the, the the one that's sort of basing the Christmas Carol. Yes, that one was good. That, that, yes. that, that was that was good. All the others have been kind of like yeah. I mean, I I I, I just don't get what the fuss was about about Runaway Bride. It wasn't a specifically good story. No, what was good about Runaway Bride um, was, was Catherine Marvel. was Catherine Tate, yeah. and yeah. they kept her. So that's, you know, but, and. Uh, well, you know, so like, um, I, you know, I think they they should, you know, so if they're doing a Christmas episode, let's steer what steer clear of doing a Christmas episode and just do a normal episode that just happens yeah. to be on Christmas Day, yeah. but you know, a longer episode because the thing is, you know, most people have had enough of, of Christmas by the time that airs at <clears> seven p.m. Most people are too drunk to care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I certainly am. I, you know, I, I, I um. I was reviewing these things on Christmas Day, um, usually through some like um, beer goggles and, <laughs> and uh, so many shots, yeah, sort of yeah. thing, um, with with the um, with with the headache beginning to set in. You know, because it's usually I usually get to review them usually around about eleven o'clock. Although, admitting mm. last 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 year, 
the review went up almost um, within sort of like 20 or 30 minutes of the episode airing yeah. because I, I had my laptop with me and I was at my sister's and I just did the review there and then. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's an interesting theory and also the uh, theory about who the next Doctor would be that we mentioned in the last podcast. Uh, what's his name now again? Chris Marshall, Chris I think Marshall. it was. Yeah, the uh, the, the uh, sitcom that I mentioned in, in the last episode, I couldn't remember the name of it. It's called yeah. My Family. He was in the first oh. few seasons of My Family. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, he was actually very funny <laughs> in the first few <laughs> seasons of My Family. Um, so you know, if you want to see see Chris Marshall do comedy, that's the uh, that that that's the series to go to. <laughs> okay. So um, is that it for this week? I think so. Okay. I think so. Well, we'd like to thank you all for listening. It's been great, you know, doing the show and. Talking about um, different different aspects of Doctor Who, American Gods, watch American Gods. Please. Please. It, please. It's awesome. If you don't, we'll pull your tail, toenails out. We'll, we'll flail your skin with a butter knife if you don't watch it. You've got to watch American Gods. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's it for now. Um, we'll be back at you again real soon with uh, more, 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 more discussion and interviews. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>